Welcome to Men Talk, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of miscarriage, infertility, infant loss, and stillbirth. Hosted by Daniel Landau, founder of menshelpline.org, we'll be sitting down every week with real guys to discuss their stories, struggles, and triumphs. So grab a drink, sit tight, and let's talk. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Men Talk podcast, where men talk about miscarriage, infant loss, stillbirth, and infertility. Today's guest is Haitesh Solanki, who hails from California. Haitesh, the floor is yours. Feel free to share your story, your journey, and uh, we'll go from there. For sure, for sure. Thank you, Daniel, for giving this opportunity to me. Um, so I'll just get into it. I'm basically 42 years old, uh, originally from Mumbai in India. Moved to the U.S. Uh, in 2001 uh, time frame. And then, uh, yeah, I've been in the telecom world and the wireless industry for a long time. And uh, currently, we live in Pacifica, California, with uh, my beautiful wife, Nan, who is Chinese by birth, but has lived in Japan all of her life. Um, and so our infertility journey kind of sort of begins around 2018, December. Uh, we started to, you know, try naturally and uh, fail to conceive and effectively saw a fertility expert who basically said, uh, you know, we, we saw the expert around mid uh, to late 2019. And uh, that was the period that they had asked us to keep you know, going naturally, as they say, at least about a year or so. And then in December uh, or around October, November 2019 is when the um, expert basically guided us to try like a couple of attempts of IUI. Um, so we did that. One was without any medication. One was with medication. Obviously, no success even there. Um, and then 2019 was kind of just passed by and all in you know different attempts and trying different things. Effectively, in 2020, we visited India. My sister was getting married, and uh, uh, we came back in February. But then as soon as we came back in March, the pandemic hit. The idea when we came back was like, well, you know, we've tried natural, we've tried IUI. doesn't seem like it's kind of working out for us. Let's just try and explore the IVF path. Um, but as soon as we thought about it, obviously the pandemic hit, things kind of got shut down. We were also told that uh, because India was a, a country that had a Zika virus presence, uh, that they would not really be able to do any IVF uh, three procedures either on us to, you know, get ourselves tested and things like that. So that pushed the plans out even further um, around July of 2020. Another storm hit us uh, as a family. I was diagnosed with tuberculosis and uh, I got treated for that. Uh, it, it was basically a, an empirical diagnosis, tuberculosis of the testicle. Um, so actually they didn't know what it was until they kind of had to perform an orchiectomy, which is you know, operating and taking one of the testicle out, um, which was when revealed that it wasn't a cancer, but it was uh, some sort of uh, tuberculosis. And I got put onto the six months TB medication treatment that uh, basically is this bazooka of, of medicines that if people and the listeners don't know about, practically just, you know, it, it risks your liver, your eyesight, and a whole bunch of other things that as, as side effects. Um, as it kind of tries to cure the TB bacteria or TB uh, disease inside of you. And because my wife was obviously living with me, she was also tested, but she was tested and turned out positive for latent 
tuberculosis, which also had a four month long treatment. Um, so give or take our treatment started um, around September, October of 2020, went on until December is when my wife ended it. I kept on going until April of 2021. But as soon as her treatment was done, we tried the first IVF cycle. Um, she got onto um, uh, the medication and the egg retrieval procedure, which happened in February. And our numbers were looking promising. We got 16 eggs from that cycle. Uh, six were frozen. Now in that cycle, we did not do any genetic testing. We did not do a fresh transfer. Um, the first frozen transfer we did was in February of 2021 which um, in the process, interestingly, uh, when we were about to get the transfer done, the doctor calls up and says the embryo that we thawed didn't thaw all the way through or didn't thaw, thaw appropriately. And so we're gonna thaw another one and we're gonna try and put both of them in to see if that results in pregnancy. Um, luckily we did get pregnant with uh, one of them for about six weeks. My wife went for an ultrasound at the six week and the, the pediatrician asked her to come back again in a couple of weeks and when we came back again that's when she found out that the heartbeat was gone and we had lost that baby she was by herself it was the uh, crazy times we didn't expect it at all we thought that everything is hunky-dory everything was going to be great and to kind of come back home with with the saddest news of our life uh, we just lost a baby that we had uh, was tremendously heartbreaking um, and then a day or so after that news she just passed the, the, the embryo naturally in, during her urination process. And in hindsight, we were, we found ourselves at least lucky that we didn't think it was alive when she passed it. Uh, and we knew that it was no longer there with us. Um, so anyway, then we did another transfer in July of 2021, which resulted in no pregnancy. Again, heartbroken, um, we decided to kind of change the service provider. The third frozen transfer was uh, um, was was then paused with, with the existing provider. We went to the other provider and did a complete new egg retrieval cycle there. And this time we decided to actually go ahead and do the genetic testing. And the numbers there were also pretty decent. We had 12 total eggs retrieved that were viable, out of which six were fertilized and embryos uh, became embryos that were viable. And after genetic testing, uh, actually this time we also did a fresh transfer of one and saved the six or sent the six to get uh, tested. And out of those, about <clears throat> four, were, um, third, four were deemed to be viable. And so we kind of, uh, the, the fresh embryo transfer in December didn't pan out. We didn't become pregnant out of the, the tested frozen ones, we thawed one, which are, we thawed one and that was destroyed. So we couldn't use that one, but then we did thaw another one. And that is where we think we are pregnant right now, but fingers crossed, uh, we're gonna find out at, a, at an ultrasound on Tuesday to find out if we are really pregnant with that. And so, yeah, as you can imagine, sorry to be rambling on for so long, but uh, as you can imagine, it was uh, it was quite a bit of, you know, ups and downs and ups and downs to our journey. And here we are looking further for, I guess, some more ups and downs. <laughs> what was the ups and downs like for you? How did you handle that mentally? Um, I think 
One of the things that I do feel after going through so many of them is because this whole procedure is so mechanical or so, you know, goal-oriented, I could call it, or or every step has a purpose and it's very numerical, very like, you know, it almost feels unreal that we are actually going through something that has such a deep impact emotionally. For for my my wife, obviously, it's something that is being happening to her body. So there is a certain uh, feel to it, a certain attachment or or you know realization of it. But for me, because I'm sort of coming at it as a very uh, and pandemic didn't help because I was not part of all of the initial procedures. It feels very mechanical, and it feels that we didn't give adequate time or have adequate you know mental space to kind of absorb everything and deal with it as it was happening. So like a miscarriage when it happened, it maybe was just uh, us, maybe it was also the doctors because they want to get through as many as they can, I guess, or, or, you know, we didn't really spend enough time to even grieve the loss of the one that we lost. And I feel that in hindsight, that was a, that was a mistake. Uh, that was something that we should have been more cautious about and worked upon so that we could get that, you know, we could both get on the same page and get a closure appropriately so that we, you know, don't feel something unsaid or undone. Um, and, you know, in general, I think the handling of emotions needed a, needed a little bit more conscious recognition. Um, and then the one thing that I would definitely say is empathy is massive along the whole process, that you've got to cultivate empathy for each other. And I don't think we did that enough. In fact, um, there were developments and situations that got created uh, in the recent past where it was very hard for me to have empathy for my wife. And I, in hindsight, I realized that she's going through something that is completely unforeseen and, and profound, so much so that even maybe she herself is not consciously able to gather all of the impact that it is having. And for me to, you know, sort of take it at its face value and, and sort of react to it was even stealing more from the empathy that we should have had for each other as we go through this process. So, yeah, I mean, to, to a short answer to your question is that I don't think I handled it per se that well. Um, and I'm one of those that actually finds comfort in giving comfort. So I don't think I needed as much comfort, but I needed as much uh, patience and perseverance to actually give comfort so that things could definitely have been uh, better amongst the two of us. Totally understandable. Were you shocked after you did the first round that the embryo didn't necessarily stick? You know, there was no heartbeat and all these things are difficult. It's obviously a tale of triumph. And, and obviously people say it's also a numbers game. You got to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. You never know yeah. what's going to stick. Yeah. But was there kind of a, a moment of shock for you when, when it didn't stick or an aha moment when he said, okay, right now we're pregnant like we're spending all the money we're doing the procedures you had you know an interesting personal journey where you had to have a testicle like was there an aha moment for you there were there were many shocking moments i wouldn't say um there were as as many shocking moments as as aha moments i would say um like so as we were going through the whole 
my side of struggle, right, with the orchiectomy and we were actually saving vials of my sperm so that who knows if you know, I'm unable to produce sperms in the future, we have something in the back of our reserve. So we, we thought we were already kind of thinking ahead of what the eventualities could be. Um, but the one thing that we did not think of or we were sort of not exposed to as much because of the lack of our own sort of initiatives, like we didn't seek out support groups. We, My wife actually did attend a few Facebook support groups with women, but the bracket of those women and the number of attempts that they had been trying, like age group as well as the number of attempts, was exponentially higher. She's 35. Um, and the women that were on that group were like over 40 and they had like multiple failed attempts and they had chronic conditions and things like that. So she kind of very comfortably felt that, well, this is not me. It'll probably not happen to me. So I don't need to be, you know, thinking all those negative thoughts. And I sort of kind of saw that with the same lens. I'm like, yeah, that's true. I mean, we're healthy. We eat the healthiest food. We, I'm, I'm a super active person. I wake up and go to the gym at five in the morning. Um, she's taking really good care of her health. And so this, whatever this is that we have, it's probably just a phase. And because we don't want to wait until we get pregnant naturally um, towards the later part of the portion of our age, we want to do this. We want to speed up the process and get pregnant sooner. So that's why we are doing IVF. But so the expectation was we got into it with multiple eggs, with multiple embryos saved and all that. We kind of were cruising. We were like, oh, yeah, we're good. We're good. We're good. And when the heartbeat came around in the first attempt, we were like, oh, awesome. You know, this is how it's supposed to go. But then when we did lose the heartbeat and when we did, did lose the embryo or the, the that pregnancy when miscarriage happened, it was a, a definite disaster moment. Like we were like, huh? Like how, what, how is that even possible? Like everything was going so smooth and there's no reason for this to not work. It did work. Are you sure? And like, there were just so many questions that had suddenly sprung up. And then, and this was over, you know, multiple transfers before and about a year plus ago. So now we kind of have gotten to a point where setting expectations is immensely important. Like we thought that everything is going to be hunky-dory expectations with the number of, you know, the number game is, is massively important. Like you mean, if you expect the least, you're probably going to be pleasantly surprised in the whole process. The money game, um, when I say numbers, I meant like the number of eggs, the number of, you know, viable eggs and the tested eggs, tested embryos and things like that. So the same thing with the money aspect of too. God bless us, we have you know, sources and, and support system where we can actually do two rounds of IVF uh, egg retrievals. I mean, that's crazy expensive. But even that in the beginning was massive sticker shock. You know, like this test, 5,000 bucks. That test, 5,000 bucks. This medicine, 500. That medicine, adding up those numbers go go crazy. We were initially like just reluctant. And then effectively we realized that we want this at whatever cost it takes. And we live in an area where things are not cheap. You know, the area is probably the most expensive for this stuff just because of the sheer demand of, uh, you know, IVF and infertility issues. So we just made our peace with it. We were like, okay, it's, it is what it is. And we're going to keep going until we can't anymore. And that was like, the, everything was a shock in the beginning, but then effectively we kind of came around it and, just accepted it to be a part of our lives. And that's where we are right now. Um, we just accepted it to be a part of our lives. And 
you're right with the with the archaeotomy, with losing of one of the testicles, and still being able to produce sperm, still being able to have you know viable sperm to kind of create more embryos. I feel myself super lucky that you know I still have that blessing um, from from the, the Almighty, I guess. <laughs> It's definitely a blessing because you hear stories of people going through these procedures and not being able to. So the fact that you were able to, that's that's a miracle in itself and a, and a success. During during the process, did you feel like you had any support from friends or from family or networks, any support groups? I know you mentioned that, that your wife had all these support that she could go to. Yes, maybe different age groups, but what about on your side? Not really, no. Um, as far as support goes, um, it's very, very hard, and I don't want to put any you know blame on anybody else. And I'm pretty sure I've heard people come on your show, and even other places when I talk to. It's one of those things that is very, very, very deeply personal when you fail at it, because it's not something that. People, like if you interview for a job and you don't get it, you have a certain type of support system because people have been in that situation. They've failed at an interview and they know how the, how, how, how badly it stays and how, the, how it stays. When you fail at something like fertility, I don't have anybody around me in the nearest friend or family that actually have gone through any kind of infertility or even if they have, they haven't really sort of it's not something that has been understood enough for them to say something. Uh, even the closest ones, when I try to explain to them, it sort of empathy comes around, yes, but it's not. Um, and I totally don't expect them to have that sense of empathy or say things that would comfort me. Because like I said, it's a very personal and internal struggle that every man sort of has a way of doing it. Some turn to substances some tend to, you know, alcohol, etc. What I found myself toward the most is just working out and focusing on my own body, focusing on my own mental health. Um, I do practice Vipassana, so that helps quite a bit. But as far as external support or outside help, um, other than the professional path, uh, which we did try uh, intermittently uh, with, with counseling, there was nothing specifically that would speak to how I feel. And so I created my own methods. Like I said, I focus on workout. I focus on my own body and health. I write myself appreciation letters um, when it's a terrible day. And, you know, a lot of uncertainties happen. I take a pen and a paper and I write myself what I would want to say to myself or I would want to say to somebody who's kind of, who I know has been going through so much and how, you know, what would make it uh, feel a slightly bit better. Um, <clears throat> but so, yeah, no, support-wise, um, I'm glad I met, met the Facebook group. I mean, I saw the Facebook group and I signed up for it. And just reading through it while we were, you know, in the, in the initial, about two months ago or three months ago is when I discovered the Facebook page. But other than that page and other than listening to or reading through people's struggle that um unfortunately is even worse than ours sometimes like I, I read posts where people actually have divorced each other because they couldn't just go through this the sheer stress of it and i i kind of internalized all of that and and realized that well just reading through that, that people go through hell and back for during these things 
and and we are not as 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 uh, as bad in a position kind of automatically became a support system for me uh, where i was able to kind of say okay we are not in that bad of a situation we still have hope and i'm going to do everything in my capacity to just latch on to that hope and that just became my intrinsic support system and that still is my support system the saying goes you got to believe right mm-hmm. i mean when you're going through these these struggles i mean it's it's just incredible the amount of work the amount of effort the amount of communication it takes between you and your spouse and yes couples do break down over it which is really unfortunate but at the yeah. same time if you're open and you're talking about it and you're hopeful there will be times where we triumphs and success and there'll be times where there'll be failures. But the more we talk about it, the more we understand what's going through, the more you go through it. I think the struggle will be as long as you have that, that personal outlet, which it sounds like yeah. you did, you know, it doesn't have to be a say, Oh, go to sport, be internal. I like the fact that you, you know, journaled and said, okay, this is what I feel. This is how, this is what I want to be. And I'm trying to look at the positive outlook. Cause if you don't look at the positive outlook, it could be detrimental. Oh yeah, like it's an ocean of negativity all around you, like just waiting to consume you and just start chewing up on you internally. And like I was saying earlier, having positivity and empathy for each other is like the most important bare minimum that you, if you don't have that, if you see yourself depriving that or, or depleting on those two reserves of empathy and, and positivity, you're not going to make it. <laughs> it's it, like this is going to break you and tear you apart and throw you into pieces. Your relationship, your personality, yourself, and you would hate yourself for the for that or for allowing yourself to have that happen to you. So just constantly keep, you know, replenishing the hope and positivity buckets as you go through this journey is how I see it. Absolutely. I'm curious though, in terms of your experience, I mean, you're, you're from India originally. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how familiar you are with what fertility treatments are like in India, but do you know the differences between India and the United States? Are they similar at all? Are they the process? How they how they approach it? You know, couples yeah. in the room. <clears throat> what what so what are some of the differences? Definitely, yeah, I, I've. I have, uh, you know, connections that I've spoken to at, uh, in India as well, and, and that's actually part of something that we were discussing, that if we don't succeed here, is there a possibility that we can actually move to India for a few months and kind of try to do the process over there? In speaking to one of the f- professionals there, um, so first off, the number of people actually trying um, IVF and succeeding or trying IVF in general in India has skyrocketed exponentially. Um, same issues as I guess overall the causes of infertility increase with, with stress and you know people waiting a lot more longer than earlier to try and have kids and things like that has been the same in India as well. And so there has been a boom, so to speak, of you know IVF procedures being formed. They there are also, you know, the one professional that I was saying I was talking to, they've also started to take on modern technology help uh, like uh, artificial intelligence and computer vision to actually, uh, you know, help and, and assist in identifying the grading of the embryos and the quality of the embryos and so on and so forth. 
um, they they also have certain um, I guess they're just more closer to the patients and the infertility aspect of it, where they try to do a more holistic approach with the foods and the habits and the you know various different uh, alternate medication techniques, I guess, to ensure that the success of IVF uh, kind of is is higher. They've also, I think I've read and heard that they actually don't have the limitation of just one embryo at a time that, that have, they have over here. So they actually go through some tests with the patient and it looks viable if it looks, you know, if it's not going to endanger uh, either the mother or the embryos. They actually do, um, with the consent of the parents, obviously, uh, add more, more than one embryo to increase the chances of um, the pregnancy and things like that. And so... That's one aspect of the whole IVF thing. There's also a lot more potential options to do surrogacy um, in a couple of uh, areas in India. And that has been on the higher, uh, on the increase that I've heard of in the recent past. So those are all very viable and, and you know, and, and expenses wise, obviously it's nowhere. It's, I think about uh, less than about one third or maybe half the cost of what it costs here in the US or in California to do the IVF procedure. So those are some aspects or attributes that we are familiar with, that I'm familiar with. Um, but obviously, because we know that we have some embryos here frozen, the concept of having them transferred to India or do anything like that was a little bit out of question. So we haven't really gone that path yet. Thanks for sharing that. How do you think the fertility conversation is going to change in, you know, in the near future? Do you think that people are going to be more and more open about it. You think that the cost is going to go down. I, I think it's really interesting to see how, how these treatments are going to evolve because quite frankly, I don't know with the rising cost of every of food, cars, gas, with the economy and everybody really wants to have children, how people are going to be able to sustain the cost of IVF amongst everything else. So already the costs are extraordinary. So do you see in the future that hopefully IVF will be covered, the costs of things will be going, you know, will go down? So one thing that I definitely feel should happen, I don't know whether it will or not, is to be um, considered, IVF should be considered as a part of, not as a part of like the few privileged ones that can have access to, but it should be taken to a point where people that, really want to have kids can actually afford it like i know certain governments actually take on the cost for it like israel government subsidizes it or government actually pays for it um i feel that that like the way it is right now at least in the united states is it's an extremely privileged set of people that can give it a give it a go and if it works for them within an attempt or so, then it's okay. Otherwise, it's it's unaffordable. They have to wait and save up until they can try it again. So the cost factor definitely has something to do with the the whole you know demand and supply kind of thing, where a lot more people are getting more professional. A lot many men and women are wanting to be you know in their career longer before they have a child. And so if that trend is not changing, the whole ecosystem is that you you graduate from school, you you get a job, you save money, you buy a house. By the time you get a house, you're already in your late 30s and you're, you know, drifting, slowly drifting towards not so much of your fertility peak anyway. 
And so that trend is not changing. And if that trend is not changing for that then trend to actually change a, a very different approach has to happen where the support system to, to handle kids and a career needs to be very different or needs to be very elaborate, which we don't have as a country. So, you know, back to that path where everything is getting more delayed and infertility is on the rise, which means the ability to kind of beat that infertility or counter that infertility has to kind of become a an included or an understood necessity rather than, you know, an exception. Only a few, like, fan companies are uh, able to take on the cost of infertility treatments and IVF treatments these days. The other insurance company or the other companies that have legitimate health insurance don't have any coverage for this stuff. And so that definitely needs to change um, to, for that to happen. Like I said, the awareness of, well, this is a big deal and this is a, a, a an emotional struggle that people kind of go through to, to not have anything cosmetic or not have anything frivolous, but to have this innate human desire to have a family, to have a child for which, you know, everybody almost in one form or the other is working their butt off and, you know, building a career at the end of the day. But by the time you realize it's already too late. So yeah, it, it has to be put into the common people's hands through an insurance, through an allowance, whatever it is, through the government. Um, but that needs to happen. Otherwise, it's just an emotional, you know, stretch for people like us. You're exactly right. And I think really what it boils down to also is education, you know, and awareness. I think insurance companies need to realize that this is not just about people wanting to have children per se and the costs about, you know, we want to feel like everybody else, you know, it shouldn't, Mm -hmm. we should be penalized for not being able to do this on our own naturally. You know, it's, it's out of, it's completely out of your control. It's not a pre-existing condition. It's not something that, that, you know, went right. It's completely natural. The statistics show one in four pregnancies end in a miscarriage. One in eight couples struggle with infertility. So with those two statistics in the mind, the guy to your left, the guy to your right could have gone through it. There's no reason why insurance companies should say, no, we can't cover it. It's crazy. I mean, I honestly think that more educational awareness has to, has to happen. Education awareness actually both ways. In fact, you touch upon a very good point. I personally didn't believe, I mean, I, I still believe that it's to each as his own. Um, you know, when, when couples get together and decide they want to have a family, it's a, a very personal decision. But this, and when it happens to you, you're like, you know, you want to be very cautious about it and you kind of can't help but guide people that are younger than you and say, look, it, this is a, a demon that shows up in your life. And the only way to kind of avoid it is to, you know, have kids early and be done with it when you know you're capable and when everything is, or at least be attending earlier in your life so that if there are problems, you get to find out about them sooner. And maybe there's something that you can, you know, with time do about it. Um, so it, it's still a to each as his own type of decision, but just having, we've been told and taught, and I've heard this on multiple podcasts that, it, the sex education in the in, in its form that it is right now is all about not to have sex and don't don't do this and don't do that. But the later portion of your adulthood where you do want to kind of intentionally have kids and want to make sure that you have a family, 
well, what are the downfalls of not doing that in the right phase of your health? Or what are some of the tests that you can do? Like nobody goes and does a semen analysis out of the ordinary as a part of your annual health routine check. But there are a lot of men who could benefit from having that done and be like, you're, you know, you need to improve your diet or you need to do something different with your body or your count is not normal. And, you know, be recommended to kind of take care of this sort of thing. To have to wait until it's too late and then react to it is kind of one of the things that hits you in the gut for the most part. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I do think that that the doctors need to step up the game in terms of you go for a yearly physical, you know, you go for your routine CBC blood test, blood count, all the things like that go on routinely. You know, mm-hmm. the semen analysis should be part of that that process as well because like you said, if you start early and you diagnose early, you know, there might be ways to, to, I wouldn't say solve the problem, but at least you're, you're well aware going into it. I mean, it shouldn't just be, oh, someone's going through IVF. So all of a sudden now you need to do a semen analysis and then you get the shock of your life. Oh, I have low mortality. I mean, or, you know, yeah. low sperm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, yeah. I wish the doctors would say, you know, do a semen analysis like you do a regular urine culture or any of these other type of tests that, that, that you do. Education, exactly. Again, like I did not really know a lot of facts about the semen analysis on my side and also that the fact of, you know, how steeply the decline of the eggs start to happen for women after a certain age, after around 30, 35, 36. Like when I saw that graph for the first time, I was completely blown out of my mind. I was like, and there's that difference between how women can actually get pregnant even later, even 45, 50, when they are that old. But their ability to produce eggs is kind of depleting at a more dramatic rate. And so those two things are different. And unless you go through an infertility journey, you really never connect those dots. It's like, okay, yes, this is exactly why they recommend that you need to, you know, either have kids early on or at least save your eggs for the future. And even that, like the whole, again, saving and the freezing portions are so extremely expensive and they're not that convenient, I guess, in the procedure and in how, you know, they're recommended by the doctors, etc. So an average Joe and an average Jane are that are going about their family or going about their lives in their early 30s, enjoying it, are not even going to be aware of what's waiting to hit them if they're not really nudged in that direction by by the healthcare system. Right on. What would be your 10 top tips or takeaways that you would want to share with other guys going through this journey? Oh, absolutely. Um, I wouldn't say if I have 10, but I bucket the things that I would recommend or I'd like to share after going through all of this into two sort of buckets. One is uh, the outside help bucket, and one is the initiatives that you can take on your own as a man or as a family or as a couple um, with each other. <clears throat> so I'll start with the initiatives. The number one is um, set up a check-in frequency or cadence between you and your partner and be like, you know, let's keep this or, or if it's not a frequent thing, if, if it's not, uh, if it's repeatable, <clears throat> if repeatability is not your thing, at least have some sort of indicator saying, I want to check in with you, how you're doing, how are you handling this? Or, you know, have that conversation or that opportunity maybe after dinner 
before going to bed? How was your day? How are you handling? How how did you handle things that went today with the infertility aspect of it? Because that's super important that that providing that opportunity to speak up or to share is again kind of going to get towards the the empathy and uh, and hope kind of a bucket. Uh, you don't essentially have to create hope or or you know positivity. I read somewhere it was on Instagram. I think it was not about you know always smiling, but having that hope that tomorrow would be a better day. That to me is positivity. So allow yourself that channel to each other to have that communication done. Um, and if it's not working out between the two of you as great, then seek professional help. That would be on the outside help bucket. But that's something that I would highly, highly, highly recommend. Um, if you're not as good in communicating with each other, definitely reach out to an external help. Um, the number two thing would be, again, related to you know creative positivity, creating positivity and hope around you. And so that could come with um, various different channels. They could people like flowers, people like something you know funny to watch. Uh, TV and and videos and Instagram kind of helps a lot, I guess. And uh, you know short videos, comedy. Go watch something like like have yourself in that laughter phase as much as you can when you're going through all this to take your mind off. Um, as well as to really, you know, it's it's healthy. Just endorphins kind of uh, uh, help you kind of get through and stay healthy. Um, that's number two on the internal initiative side. Um, number three would be um, try and nurture and take care of something. Um, it could be, you know, having a plant or a garden or or even a, we have a lovely little labradoodle, the uh, pet Suki. She gives so much joy to us. And just by looking at her, taking care of her, just having her around, taking her to the beach, it's a channel that it keeps us away from, you know, anxiety or any kind of negativity if you've gone, if you've just gone through some sort of a sad news. And B, keeps you physically healthy as well. Like it, it's, it's super important as in, you can't emphasize enough how, how important it is to have a dog in your life, I think. <laughs> but um, and every dog owner will say that but having that channel as a person as a couple as a family is extremely important when the times of anxiety and, and negativity are you know just killing you left right and center every day um, and then the the fourth initiative uh, as I mentioned earlier um, it's an internal thing between the two people is deal with your losses adequately like Try to speak about it. You know, if you feel like meditating, meditate about it. Think about it. Think in all different directions. Like how great it would have been if you did have that embryo survive, or how good would have been if we did have a child out of that, etc. Like have that all processed enough between the two of you so that it can be then, you know, put away and not be kind of bothering you later in life, um, consciously or subconsciously, either ways. So those are my initiatives internally. Um, for the outside help, like I said, get professional help. Uh, if communication seems to be iffy between the two of you, um, seek out an RMFT or people that specialize in IVF counseling are also there, I believe. Um, the podcasts and the Facebook page, especially for men, I feel I, I had a marked uh, difference in my mindset when I started to read the course and when I got in touch with uh, with you and I had that first chat with you in 
back and I've heard through all of your guests. There was also a, a movie that one of your guests was uh, a director for, I think, The uh, Easy Bit, which is an immense help. It not just conveys to you your own story, but you can actually use that to even have your friends and family watch it and review it so that they get a, a, an insight into what is going on with your life and what is going on in your mind if you are not able to best you know, communicate that yourself. Um, discuss your story, right? You know, just have have uh, that be a channel to open up a conversation and have somebody that is good at listening to give you a, uh, give you to to give you attention and, and see what what they can gather out of it. And if they don't get it, if they if you feel that the other people are not you know able to support you in a way you expect them to, don't get mad at them. They're just not equipped for it. Like find the right channels. Get onto that Facebook group or any other channel that you feel understands it and just kind of you know focus your channel or energies in in those directions um and again outside I kind of as well as initiative internally is like i said for me as a man i felt working out uh, sometimes i cry during my workouts sometimes the emotions are so high running high and i'm i'm kind of as i'm battling the weights i'm battling my emotions internally but that's not in a negative way, in, in a positive way. I feel that I was able to accomplish. I was able to level up my game. I was able to, you know, take care of something that is in my control and use it to, to make my health better. Um, that was a huge one for me. Um, and I still do it till date. And the last one is, like I said, it doesn't fall into other categories, but it just set your expectations and prepare for a long haul journey. If you get lucky and it's not as big of a ultra marathon as it is for many of us, consider yourself lucky and, and tap out earlier. But don't get in thinking that you can tap out early um, at the first sign of positive uh, results or, you know, just because you got X, just because you got the, you know, your, uh, your eggs saved in like the number 20s doesn't mean that those all 20 of those eggs are going to result into embryos. It's going to dramatically, you know, reduce in that embryo phase and then definitely get them tested genetically to, to make sure which ones are really viable versus which one would not even result in a pregnancy. So that was a huge difference for us. And it felt like it was actually important for everybody to kind of know that the way it was presented to us earlier on was not that articulate. So we thought, oh, it's another $5,000 and they're, you know, never mind, we don't need it. We're going to be okay with it. In hindsight, we should have done that because that also eliminated a few embryos that were not even viable. And so our count basically came down to like three and we are holding on to them very dearly right now because we know that that's, that's, you know, that's the best chance that we've got. So get into it with a long haul mindset. If you get lucky and if God blesses you with something sooner, then tap out and, and be okay with it. But if not, keep the hope up, keep the positivity going. That's the only way to go. That's really good advice. Aitesh, thank you so much for being on the show. And to all the listeners out there, remember, you're not alone. We're here for you. We're here to help you get through this. You will get through it. You should stay strong. And you are not alone. Aitesh, thank you so much again. And to all listeners, if you want to be in touch with Hitesh, I'm sure he's happy to speak with you. If you're out in California, he's happy to meet up with you. Again, I can, I can, happy to connect you with him. Thank Absolutely. you so much again. Thank you very much, Daniel, for everything you're doing. And yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Look me up. I'll be more than 
happy to share my experience and be uh, be a buddy at the bar with a beer or hit up at the gym and help you lift some more. <laughs> You've just listened to another great episode of Men Talk with Daniel Landau. If you've suffered from miscarriage, infertility, stillbirth, or infant loss and want to open up about it, reach out. We'd love to have you on the show. You can also join our Facebook group, or if you'd like to get involved and start a chapter in your neighborhood, visit our website, www.menshelpline.org today. Until next week, stay strong, and remember, you're not alone.